Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. Here we are at midweek. We have some uh, issues, especially in the upper Midwest, with propane availability. It doesn't seem to be the supply issue as much as the infrastructure, pipeline availability. It's just uh, infrastructure issues. We're going to talk about that with Michael Newland with the Propane Education Research Council. Also, as we continue to watch... What happens with USMCA? There's more and more talk about it. Maybe not getting voted on till next year. Unions are starting to weigh in on this. U.S. unions and raising some of their concerns. And uh, certainly we're hearing from the Democrats uh, in the House, especially saying uh, maybe we better slow down on this a little bit. We're going to talk about that with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council and what the USMCA means uh, to the U.S. pork industry. We have new numbers out from the... Uh, Ag Barometer, the Purdue CME Group Ag Barometer, and Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer will join us with those latest numbers coming up later in the program. But first, let's talk about this propane issue. Uh, we're hearing cases of um, not having propane available for grain drying, but also for heating homes and other uh, critical uses, and there are some real challenges. And we bring in Michael Newland, who is Director of the Ag Business Development for the Propane Education and Research Council. Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, What's your assessment of this situation? Is it supply or is it delivery? Well, uh, appreciate the opportunity, first of all. Uh, yeah, we unfortunately, we do have a big supply of propane in the country. Uh, if you're in one of those areas where you're uh, strapped a little bit on grain drying, though, that really doesn't uh, resonate with you. So we're, we're sensitive to the fact that uh, we do have supply, but uh, we're, we're rallying the troops from a logistics standpoint, and uh, our industry is uh, doing everything that it can to uh, to get the logistics uh, hurdles cleared here. Now, we've heard about pipeline issues and other uses for the pipeline, and uh and that makes it harder to to move propane. Is that the case? Well, in in the case of the pipelines, it is. Uh, we we do not have dedicated propane pipelines. We're on shared pipelines, so it's a function of scheduling and those things. Uh, what I can share with you, though, is the fact that um, everybody at every level. In fact, we've had some pretty high level conversations with uh, the pipeline uh, operators. And uh, those conversations are happening on a daily and weekly basis of, uh, of how to increase our opportunities there. And uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's happening uh, from the industry's point of view. And I know some of the, uh, the uh, state governments, in fact, have reached out to those same people to, to express the, uh, the need in, in the areas of the upper Midwest. So uh, we're, we've got buy-in from a lot of different uh, folks in a lot of different organizations, and that's a great thing when, when everybody's coming together to work on a common problem. And uh, but uh, but yeah, we're we're working all the logistics avenues here to try to uh, alleviate some of the strain on the Upper Midwest. How are priorities set? Who makes the call? We're dealing right now, of course, with a lot of uh, uh, wet grain that. Uh, being harvested that needs dried, but you're also talking about heating homes and things like that. How are those decisions made about uh, what, when you have propane, where it goes first? 
Well, that's a that's you know uh, the propane. Uh, propane is an interesting organization and in, uh, interesting industry. We've got uh, uh, thousands of marketers that are independent marketers across the country selling propane, and those decisions are made at the local level. Um, you know, we've got our opinions on how those priorities should be set uh, from Perk's standpoint, but uh, the transactions are happening at the local level, and those decisions are made at a local level as well. We're talking with Michael Newland with the Propane Education and Research Council. Michael, it's a late harvest. Here we are into November. I mean, there's we've seen this coming. How, so how does this come about? I mean, uh, it's not like it should have caught anyone by surprise that there would be these demands here in November. No, it really hasn't, and, uh, and uh, that, that's uh, in fact we I was believe I was on your show earlier in the uh, growing season talking about this very issue. It's it's an issue that uh, the late planting compressed the the season essentially, and we've got a bunch of acres coming off at the exact same times. I'm sitting here staring at a at a U.S. map, looking at the corn moisture across the country, and um, not only are we late in the harvest, but our demands per bushel are significantly higher than what uh, the model that we've created, which has 19 years worth of history in it than any year in, the, in that data set. So we've got uh, late harvest uh, compressing uh, the bushels that are coming off, and now we're asking uh, the demand to be higher per bushel. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a historic year. Uh, it has been, unfortunately, since we uh, had the rains and, and the crop was delayed going into the ground. So it's been a challenging year, and why, why not uh, finish it off with another challenge, I guess? And, um, you know, uh, we've, we've got some big movements in the numbers. I'm staring at USDA um, harvest numbers that came out on Monday. Uh, some of the upper Midwest did make great strides this past uh, week in, in harvesting. So Iowa made a big push. Minnesota made a big push. And uh, I think that's probably, um, you know, with, with any luck, I don't know that, uh, that it's going to subside here, the demand, in, in a week, but uh, I don't know how long we can keep up the pace in which the, the crop came off in some of those states um, you know, over the past week. So that may be a silver lining in the crop report data that came out on Monday. So, But it's historic, and like I said, we're pulling a lot of bushels off uh, across the Midwest, and quite honestly, our models are showing from Illinois all the way through up through the Dakotas, uh, we're going to have higher than normal uh, grain drying demand on every one of those bushels. So it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting map. Um, I do want to reiterate that we've got uh, extra transports on the road. Some of our wholesalers and, and folks that run transports are doing a fantastic job pulling resources from other parts of the country into the into the Upper Midwest and. Um, we're having a lot of great conversations on a daily basis on on how we can uh, move more product into those areas. So the supply is there, as you said earlier. It's just a matter of getting it to where it needs to be, and that process is underway. That's exactly correct. And like I said, we've got uh, we've got a lot of folks uh, that have resources available. Um, there's service waivers in place just about in every state in the Upper Midwest. Uh, that allow extra hours of driving time for those transport operators. So, um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of tools that have already happened. Uh, it's going to take a little time for some of those things to take uh, place and really see the effects of those um, at the farm gate. But uh, I think I think um, there's a, 
rest coming, and it's just a function of how fast we can make up that uh, that demand and get uh, get supply headed that way. Well, as you said, yet another challenge here for 2019. Michael, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. I appreciate it. Michael Newland with the Propane Education and Research Council. All right, up next, will USMCA get voted on this year, or is it going to be pushed into next year? We'll talk about that and the importance of USMCA to the pork industry with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council, next on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. U.S. unions are starting to weigh in on USMCA and their concerns with it, things they want to see different. House Democrats are responding as well. Representative Rosa DeLara from Connecticut saying we want to get this right. Timing is not the issue. Working people cannot afford for us to get this wrong. Even uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who continues to say we're on a path to yes, but says, I'd like to have it done as soon as it's ready. I wouldn't rule it out next year. Hopefully we can do it sooner. But I said when it's ready, we will do it. Let's talk about this with Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel for Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, thanks for joining us. We're still in the first week of November. Are you concerned this might get pushed into next year? Absolutely. National Pork Producers Council is very concerned that this could slide into next year. We would like the vote to take place this year. We believe the votes are there. Having said that, we think there's been a constructive dialogue between Ambassador Lighthizer, the administration on the one hand, and um, leadership of House Democrats on the other. Obviously, we want to see more members of Congress comfortable for this and voting for it. But we really need to get this done. So our hope, and and the Speaker has not closed the door to getting it done this year. I think she wants to get it done this year. And our great hope, and we're telling members of Congress, we want to see the vote this year. But if you start making changes, then you run a greater risk of Mexico rejecting it, don't you? really depends on how that's done. Um, and I look, I, I think Mexico has been very flexible. Mexico has a president, Lopez Obrador, that is arguably the most labor friendly president Mexico's ever had. And um, I, I think that the United States, both the administration and members of Congress, um, I, I think most of them understand that if anybody is going to effectuate labor reform in Mexico, it's President Lopez Obrador. I think Mexico has been dealing in very good faith. And, uh, again, I I don't see any insurmountable issues here. 
And we're never going to be able to please, or the administration, Bob Lighthizer, whoever. You never can please everybody. This is the most labor-friendly deal ever negotiated. I mean, even in Democratic administrations, the Clinton and Obama administration, um, I don't fault anybody for trying to make this better. It's certainly NAFTA was very good for pork producers. USMCA will be very good for pork producers. It's imperative that we continue zero-tariff trade. We really need the certainty. Um, I think the private sector in all three countries longs for the certainty. So we, we understand the dialogue. We think it's been constructive, but we're hopeful that it comes to an end soon and that we have a vote and that the agreement is quickly implemented by all three nations. Timing becomes a critical issue, and we know Congress can move quickly if they decide to, but uh, if this keeps being pushed back and pushed back, the, the feeling is if it gets into next year and an election year, it becomes even more difficult to pass. Do you agree with that? Well, look, that's been the conventional wisdom, Mike, and I've been doing this a long time for, for pork producers. I mean, I've been at the helm on trade issues for the pork industry. I've had the great privilege since 1995. And, and that's true, but look, it's not an ironclad rule. I, I think there is a danger that, you know, this gets caught up in, in the primaries and so on. You know, look, fortunately, um, everybody's been very measured and, and I think constructive. So um, I, I certainly, if it rolls into next year, look, we want it done this year. But if it rolls into next year, then that's, we have no choice but to accept that. We want it done this year. We're working for it to be done this year. If it rolls into next year, we're going to work hard to get it done next year, even though it's an election year. And, and no, it, 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 it's not impossible, and it, and it certainly could happen next year. Nick, as we wait for USMCA, tell us about pork sales, U.S. pork sales into Mexico right now. Where do we stand? Hey, we are so much better off than we were um, a year ago, even, you know, nine, nine months ago earlier this year, because we were under the 20 percent punitive tariffs in retaliation for um, the U.S. actions on metals. And that was a real that, that was our hair on fire issue last year. Number one priority of pork producers um, MPPC had to just really, we had to roll up our sleeves when this time last year we thought the metal tariffs were going to be gone when the three leaders signed USMCA. They weren't. It was our top priority. Thank goodness the metal tariffs are gone. I mean, it was taking $12 off the price of every hog sold in the U.S. It was our top priority. Thank goodness. Yeah, sales have been good to Mexico. And exports, look, in, in spite of record hog and pork production in the United States of America and these um, trade disruptions we've had, we're, we're moving a lot of pork out of the United States to Mexico, to China. We've got the Japan deal now that we look forward to be implementing, implemented early next year. So things are certainly looking up from where we were six months ago. We're talking with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. Let's talk about China as we wait to see when and where uh, a partial trade deal gets signed. Uh, what are you looking for specifically for the pork industry here, Nick? The ability to sell lots of U.S. pork. And pork is different, really, than any product in the mix between the U.S. and China, and that's simply because of three letters, ASF. And China is the biggest pork 
producer and biggest pork consumer in the world, and estimates up to 50% of their production are, are blown out. They really need pork, and they've got to manage food price inflation. So we have a tremendous opportunity on the U.S. side for, for pork to single-handedly put a dent into the U.S.-China trade imbalance, and on the Chinese side to take safe, safe wholesome, high-quality U.S. pork and manage food price inflation. So our, our, our hope is that the deal gets done quickly. We know they're going to be importing pork. They've got to. I mean, it, it's, we hope that it's from the United States, and that's really going to be a factor of, well, what's the tariffs? We've had a combination of tariffs because of the trade war, 60% on a lot of products for, for a combined aggregate tariff of 72%. I mean, obviously that's going to favor our competitors that are paying a 12% duty. Now, the Chinese have said that they've excluded U.S. pork from some tariffs. We're looking for certainty from our government. Our government's looking for certainty from China. Our position is there should be no tariff, period. Not even the 12% tariff. It's, it's in, we, we think it's in, in China's self-interest. they got to manage food price inflation. We've got high, high volumes big volumes of safe, high-quality product, record production in the U.S. We want to send them to China. There's a lot of U.S. pork moving now. And, you know, producers want certainty. And we can't, we, at this point, we can't tell them, the U.S. government can't tell them what the tariff's going to be. But we'd like that tariff to be zeroed out. That's our position. And we'd like this deal signed ASAP. We know there's always a difference between announced sales and actual sales. Are we actually seeing shipments of U.S. pork increasing going into China? Yes, we are. And, and of course, I'm not going to, you know, I can't speculate on um, where we're going to be going. But I, I think folks understand that there's a massive protein hole in China because of African swine fever. So, again, the question is, you know, what share are the United States going to get in that market? Obviously, the extent to which um, China dropped tariffs on U.S. pork, both the punitive tariffs and ideally the WTO MFN tariff, 12 percent, so we can ship at zero. Good, you know, good gracious, boy, we send us a, a lot of U.S. pork. But I think under, under other scenarios, too, simply because of the protein hole. But obviously, it's not going to be all pork that they that they fill their needs with. We're seeing. Um, increased consumption of, of seafood and poultry. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a massive, it's the most significant sales opportunity ever presented to the U.S. pork industry and the pork industry globally, but it's also significant for other protein providers. So, you know, we, we, we want those tariffs waived. That's going to ensure that we get a really significant share of the sales to China. All right, Nick, good to talk with you again. Thank you. You're welcome, Mike. Take care. Nick Giordano, Vice President and Council, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Up next, we'll have the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Barometer. We'll talk with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer next on AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. 
Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres. That's smart. With Credence Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credence variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we have the latest numbers. These would be the October numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Barometer. And here with those numbers is Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Looks like we see some improvement in the numbers uh, last month. Yeah, glad to talk to you again. Yeah, the Agriculture Economy Barometer uh, went up from 121 to 136, so up 15 points. Uh, But... But just as importantly, if not more importantly, both the uh, the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations uh, increased by 15 points. Uh, one of the things that, that, that still remains, uh, uh, it's been very consistent the last few months, is the index of future expectations is stronger than the index of current conditions, indicating, again, that uh, producers are more optimistic long-term. Here we're talking three to five years than they are uh, short-term, looking at the next 12 months. So I always wonder what's influencing uh, farmers at that particular time. Uh, some of them were getting into fields, getting some harvesting done, and maybe maybe for some a little better than they had hoped for as far as yields were concerned. Um, maybe at I, the I times. It, I think that's certainly part of it. Usually if, if, usually when it comes to harvest and, and things are a little bit better than, than what, what was expected, this wouldn't be true of everybody, of course, but if, it would be probably true of, of some of the people that are surveyed. Uh, that strength That strengthens. Uh, the barometer, but also I think it's also related to, to corn prices to some extent. Certainly, producers are much more bullish with regarding corn prices where they may be heading in the next few months uh, compared to what they were in August. I mean, obviously, in June and July, corn prices were pretty high, but we didn't think we were going to have a very good crop. Uh, but but you know, then prices went way down in that in that uh, late July August period, and I think I think now they're a little bit more bullish with regarding. Uh, corn prices, and we do ask questions every month uh, related to if they're bullish with, uh, with respect to corn and soybeans. There really hasn't been much movement with regard to soybeans, but there has been some um, more movement towards bullishness uh, with regard to corn prices. And a lot of that has to do with trade, so I guess whatever the trade news is at the time, whether and that's been up and down, but if it's up, that, that tends to make uh, people more positive, too. Oh, that's definitely the case. Now, this... this uh, survey took place in mid-October from October 14th to 22nd, and, and there certainly was some positive trade news during that period. Uh, that that helps soybean prices, but it also helps corn prices uh, when you see something like that. And and one of the things that uh, you know we do at Purdue and they also do at other universities, we look at budgets for 2020, and when you start looking at these budgets for 2020, plugging in the prices that we're, you know, we're looking at perhaps next, next fall and fall of 2020, Things look a little better uh, than they did uh, the last couple of years in terms of a, uh, a net return per acre. And so I, I think that's also uh, playing into a, a more optimism uh, this month compared to the last couple of months. Talking with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer, talking about the uh, Ag Economy Barometer. Uh, you, you usually ask about uh, their thoughts on, on farmland values. What, what did they say this time? 
Yes, it's still like they're still less optimistic short term. Uh, only 16% think uh, land values are going to go up in the next 12 months, compared to 53% uh, expect land values to go up in the next five years. And so you still see that uh, dichotom- dichotomy between more optimistic long term, uh, but but certainly the percent that think they're going to increase in the next uh, 12 months has increased uh, in the last month or two. It's still only 16%, but that was a much smaller percent, uh, you know, in in, uh, in in August and September. And so again, I think. Uh, you know some of the things related to trade, some of the uh, some of the you know the aspects of, of of maybe net return prospects next year have made them a little bit more optimistic at least uh, looking at at land values. Now, uh, when when land values increase, you also see potential increases in cash rent, and so even though there's more people that think the cash rents could decline in the next 12 months, uh, the percent that think they could increase rose to eight percent, and so approximately 10 percent think that cash rent could actually go up. Uh, but having said that, most of the people think that cash rents are going to be stable in the next 12 months. And that's pretty consistent uh, with, the, with, the, with the surveys uh, regarding cash rents that we've seen the last few months. You, as you mentioned, overall, the ag economy barometer improving to 136, up 15 points. How does that compare uh, historically since you started doing the barometer? Well, the base period was late 2015, uh, early 2016. So that, that that first six months of the of the barometer survey it ought, is uh, arbitrarily has an index of 100. And so it's certainly stronger than that period. But but as we've talked about before, it's been very volatile this year. Uh, the index was very low in May with all the planting concerns. Increased rather dramatically to July when it was over 150 in July because the corn price uh, increased. Uh, the, uh, quite a bit, and then it came back down in August and September, and so this is a partial rebound, if you will, uh, from the declines in August and September coming out of a, a strong index in July. And I think as long as we uh, we have this trade dispute with with China, and uh, we haven't passed the uh, the Canada Mexican trade agreement, hopefully that'll be passed. As long as there's uncertainty regarding trade, we're going to see some uh, uh, you know volatility in the index. Do farmers think those deals will get worked out? Yeah, and and, uh, and more importantly, uh, the per, the percentage of producers that think that uh, that that the China trade dispute in particular is going to be worked out in in a, in a beneficial way towards U.S. agriculture is now seventy five percent. That's been running about seventy percent for quite a while. It was it's actually up to seventy five percent in October, uh, and so I think that's partly why. Uh, people are more optimistic when you when you look at the long term. Uh, they think, well, this is going to be settled, and we're going to get some of that market share back. Yeah, I'm reading into what they may be thinking, but nevertheless, I, I do think that's a, that's an important part of their uh, their expectations looking further out. We've talked about that before, and as you said, that's held pretty steady, their expectation and optimism that that's going to get worked out. Yes, definitely. That's, that's definitely been the case, but it's probably their the most optimistic they've been for a while in, in October. Well, I would think a month from now when we talk about the November numbers, I mean, we may know a lot more about those trade deals, and we'll also certainly know a lot more about harvest and uh, see where we're at with prices. Yeah, we'll be surveying people again in about a week, and so, and so yeah, it, it, we should get uh, some of these issues a little bit more resolved. It'll be very interesting to see if, if we see some more strength uh, in November. Uh, one other question that we asked that I think adds to, to optimism to some extent is we've been asking a question 
related to whether they think there's going to be market facilitation payments in 2020. And in October, over 60% thought we would see a payment in 2020. Of course, there's been nothing announced, but they're, they're, But I think it's important to note they're also factoring that in uh, to, to this next year. Uh, and if that doesn't come to fruition, uh, certainly uh, some of the some of the optimism we see uh, in the next in the next few months, the next year, uh, would 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 disappear. Uh, you know, I find that interesting uh, for those expecting that those payments will happen in 2020, but yet at the same time they're expecting the trade deal with China <laughs> to get done. Uh, that it, it it's not getting done is why we have the trade payments. I, I think what the way we way, way to parse that out is I think the trade they think the trade deal is going to get done. It's just not going to get done relatively soon. Uh, and, and so and so I, I, you know, we didn't ask this question specifically, but but uh, we do ask a question: Do you think it likely or unlikely that the trade dispute will be settled soon? And and those that think it's unlikely is fifty percent. And so they think there's going to be a trade deal done at some point. They just don't think it's going to be done soon enough. Uh, to prevent us to prevent them from getting a 2020 MFP payment. So you also ask consistent on the surface, but I think it is consistent. Uh huh. But and you also asked them about their planting intentions for next year, didn't you? Yeah, we did, and I was I was uh, a little surprised. That perhaps I should be. I know people once they get into a certain crop rotation, they like to stick to that. But three fourths of the corn and soybean producers indicated that they did not plan to change corn or soybean acreage uh, in the next year. Uh, there was a, a, a certain percent that, that they were either going to increase corn or increase soybeans, but there was no, there was no uh, dominant uh, trend there in terms of increasing corn or increasing soybeans. It was just a small percent uh, that said they were going to increase corn acres and, and a similar percent that thought they were going to increase soybeans. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because we had all those prevent plant acres and and, and so the obvious question is, where are those acres going to go next year? Uh, but, you know, just kind of looking at our, our survey results, I think they'll go to both. Uh, you know, there will be some people that increase corn acres and some pre- uh, people increase soybean acres, but it's not going to either be predominantly corn or predominantly soybeans. That's what I'm reading uh, from that question. And we won't, won't ask that question again on November, but we certainly will be asking that as we get closer to spring planting. Yeah, that'll be interesting, and and when we find out more about some of these things we've talked about, such as these trade deals, that could impact that. See what the market is uh, kind of leaning towards as far as what acres they'll be buying. Yes, and, and one of the things, of course, producers should really watch because uh, it's really bounced around the last eighteen months is that corn soybean ratio. Uh, you know, you're making sure they're tracking that. It, it it could change rather dramatically whether we have good trade news or or not so good trade news and. And I think that'll be really important as we get closer this spring, uh, you know, whether people plant more corn or, or, or plant more corn and soybeans. All right, Michael, interesting numbers. Thanks for sharing them with us. We appreciate it. You bet. Take care. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer with the results of the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. And again, the, the October numbers showing an improvement to 136 that's up 15 points compared to a month earlier all right stay with us coming up next some tips and and taking care of your equipment making good choices to help that equipment operate as efficiently as possible especially important during this busy and challenging harvest season stay with us here on aoa 
The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credenced soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture. We continue to look at ways to help you through this challenging harvest season. And one of the ways we're continue to focus on is is equipment performance. You know, the injector system is uh, a small part, but a critical part of any fuel system, which, of course, is critical to how that equipment is going to uh, perform. And if you take a machine down, then obviously that just makes the challenges of a harvest season like this even more daunting. And we're trying to avoid that. Faulty injectors can cause a lot of problems, can wreak havoc on your harvest season. But the good news is that you can minimize those injector problems. And today we're going to find out how by talking with Chad Christensen, Cinex premium diesel expert at CHS. Chad, thanks for joining us again. Uh, let's talk about these fuel injectors and why they are so uh, critical to the performance of a piece of equipment. Well, sure. Fuel injectors are, are really the heart of the fuel system. And, and just like the heart pumps blood into the body, injectors pump fuel into the cylinders. And, and the fuel injectors are designed to deliver the, the perfect fuel to air ratio into the cylinder to achieve that complete combustion. And so each time these cylinders in the engine stroke, a small needle raises in the fuel injector and distributes a fine mist of pressurized fuel into the combustion chamber over and over again. So obviously the fuel that you choose to use is critically important here. Uh, so when in thinking about those choices and decisions, what's different about today's injectors that farmers should keep in mind? Well, today's fuel injectors have a, a much smaller opening, about one twentieth uh, the diameter of a human hair, if you can imagine that, and, and they inject smaller amounts of fuel, but with very high pressures. And, and these pressures can easily exceed around forty thousand psi, even up to seventy-five thousand psi, in some engines. And that's compared to around fifteen to twenty thousand psi in, in, in the older uh, fuel injectors. So these changes uh, come as a result of the high-pressure common rail direct injection technology and while this in, it, technology provides a cleaner more efficient breakdown of the fuel and reduces emissions it, it also uh, creates additional heat and added stress on the injector and specifically the injector tip so when we're looking at the problems that can occur uh, with fuel injectors how can a farmer minimize those problems well to detect problems with your fuel injector, you need to look out for some of the most common warning signs. And, and often, compromised fuel injectors can cause a decreased fuel economy and inconsistent power. So if your equipment is experiencing any of these issues, it could mean that you have a fuel injector problem on your hands. And when these new fuel injectors first rolled out with, with the much tighter tolerances causing these hotter temperatures during combustion, 
we were seeing a lot of coking deposits on the tip of the injectors. And, and this mainly happens when you're running a typical number two diesel and it breaks down uh, during combustion, causing the fuel to coke. Uh, and then it leaves a harmful graphite-like uh, deposit on the tip of the actual injector. And another potential issue is is internal diesel injector deposits, or, or commonly referred to as IDID. And these deposits are formed inside of the actual injector body, unlike the, the coking deposits, which happen just on the injector's nozzle. And so even the slightest of these IDID deposits uh, in the injector needle will will cause it to either stick open and cause too much fuel to be sprayed, or it can even stick clo- closed, resulting in no fuel going through that injector and, and causing a significant loss of power uh, and fuel economy, and, and both of those are, are detrimental to performance. And then, finally, excess wear on these injectors. And, and and with these short pump strokes the injector needle makes inside the fuel injector, even the smallest uh, wear mark can become problematic over time. So the fuel choice that a farmer makes has a great uh, bearing on the performance of that engine and ultimately his harvest. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and I think to minimize some of these fuel injector problems, they, they can be very serious. But But the good news is, is that maintaining them can be easy. And so one of the simplest ways to maintain your fuel injectors is automatically is to use Cinex premium diesel fuels like, like Cinex Roadmaster or Ruby Field Master. And our diesel fuel is enhanced with an industry-leading, fully balanced additive package, and it helps for a more complete burn. And it works to prevent injector problems even before, even before they happen. So... You know, while while each of each component of our additive is important for overall engine health, um, I can cover a few here that that work the hardest to protect your uh, engine's injectors here. So, I mean, first really is our our storage stabilizer, and it begins working in your fuel stage, your fuel's storage tank, fighting to prevent that oxidation uh, that leads to that fuel coking, um, and, and this is coupled with our injection uh, stabilizer, which gives the fuel the strength that it needs to hold up in these extreme heat and, and pressure to minimize those, those deposits that I spoke about a little bit earlier. And we have our aggressive detergents and, in our additive package, and, and they do exactly what the name suggests. I mean, it keeps the fuel lines in the common rail clean, helping to reduce the deposits and prevent filter plugging uh, for optimal in, engine performance. And, um, you can imagine a uh, a, you can imagine a, uh, a dish soap in a greasy pan. It, it's kind of the same idea, except for your uh, fuel system. And the and the last component in our our robust additive package designed to extend uh, fuel injector life is our lubricity improver. Uh, and this reduces the friction between all of the fuel system's moving parts, which really minimizes wear and tear extending the life of, of that fuel injector. And Cinex Premium Diesel is, is keeping your fuel injectors clean and running like new. Uh, and, and this is vital for the heart of your fuel system. So don't take chances, you know, with a, with a subpar number two diesel fuel. It's, it's just not worth the risk. Um, I, I'd say if you got any more questions to visit with your local Cinex Premium Diesel dealer or, or visit us at Cinex.com. 
Good information. That's Chad Christensen, Cinex Premium Diesel Expert at CHS. Thanks, Chad. Thank you, Mike. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. <laughs> 